So, John, thank you very much for agreeing to be a part of this project, looking at how we can start thinking of new ideas and approaches to designing higher education spaces. Would you be able to just start by introducing yourself and talk about some of the projects you've been involved in, but also what excites you at the moment about the work you're doing? Okay, uh, my name is John Goddard. Um, I'm Emeritus Professor of Regional Development Studies at Newcastle University. I'm a social scientist by academic background and have for many years been studying the role of universities in the development of cities and regions. Did that as an academic, leading the University of Newcastle Centre for Urban and Regional Development Studies. And then Brian Large was asked by a new vice chancellor back in uh, 2000 to move from my research group to become deputy vice chancellor at Newcastle, responsible for its uh, involvement with the city and the region. So I was translating my academic work, policy work into practice, responsible for the university's connection to the city. And I did that uh, for 10, uh, for, from the period 2000 to 2008, and then retired in 2008 when I was 65. Uh, and then basically went to writing up some of the stuff I'd learned about in, in a number of publications. I wrote a provocation for NEST of the National Endowment of Science and Technology, the arts called Reinventing the Civic University. A bit of a polemic it was to say that universities need to go back to their roots as in, in places, particularly big civics like Newcastle, Manchester, Birmingham and Sheffield. That had quite an impact. And then I won a grant from a, a foundation, the Evening Foundation for emeritus retired professors, basically, to write a book on the university in the city, looking at the city from uh, the university from outside. What do cities want from universities? That was published quite successfully, published in paperback. And then I, I then got another book that I produced, an edited book, looking at uh, the other way around from the university out into the into the city and region. And what were the management and leadership challenges of doing all that? And, uh, you know, so those sort of two books based to academic books, which had quite an impact. Uh, and then I started getting involved in the whole concepts of what the implications were for, in, in a sense, the marketization of higher education universities in the UK through uh, the, the fees regime, which we predicted would have quite an impact on some universities the marketplace. Some universities would no longer do their stuff for their region because they were going bust. Um, and that the idea that universities which were anchor institutions in key places across the UK prompted, amongst other things, the setting up of the Civic University Commission, chaired by uh, Lord Kerslake, which looked into the role of universities in their places, particularly in relation to places which were suffering from decline um, and were not doing so well. And the Civic University Commission uh, published a report. I was appointed uh, as its vice chair, the academic expert, if you like, uh, chaired by Lord Kerslake. And we launched, and this is where I'm really working right now, a network of universities across the UK uh, there are now a hundred, just over a hundred universities that have agreed to produce civic university agreements, working with their local partners to develop their uh, developing their campuses and their and their facilities for the benefit of the local communities. So at the moment, I'm most excited by this growing uh, civic university movement, which is a, a global movement as well. 
that as a result of all of this, I, I've now got a, I've now gone back into employment. I've been appointed as professor of universities and cities in Birmingham University, where I'm based in a, a research group called City Ready, uh, which is researching and, and advising Birmingham University in the West Midlands on this agenda. I think it's fair to say you're one of the top experts and your experience there in how we can work together with cities and the whole civic model really is, is it's encouraging to hear that now many different universities are, are listening to how we can use this approach. Is there a memorable space that you'd like to talk about from your time at university? Well, I think that the place I'd, space I'd like to talk about is the International Centre for Life. I was involved in setting up, and this, this goes back to the millennium, 2000, when a number of academics working in what were then in the life sciences area, particularly in human genetics. We had human genetics researchers all over the university. And this was a new emerging area of science, which was really be relevant to the way in which we delivered health outcomes. And, and, and we know all about that now in the context of, of the pandemic. So we, a group of these academics got together and said we needed a new space where we could bring people from all across the university to work together from different disciplines, but also work with the National Health Service. They wanted to, to work on stem cells, the way they could get these stem cells. Uh, uh, adult stem cells was from the fertility testing service in NHS, and they needed to work with, with the laboratory people in the NHS doing fertility testing. They were also concerned that this whole idea of human genetics was quite challenging in terms of ethical areas. And so they said, well, what we do need to know, we introduce public understanding of the ethics of human genetics. And what we want to do is set up a visitor attraction to attract young people. We had we had science museums, but we didn't have museums around uh, human genetics. And so they said we wanted to get public understanding and acceptance that doing this genetic engineering was acceptable to society. And we needed to get people from the university, not just from the, uh, the science side, but from religious studies, sociology involved in all of this. And they came together uh, with what was then the uh, piece of land which had been left over from the uh, Urban Development Corporation right near the central station in Newcastle and developed this idea of an international centre for life, bringing all these academics together with a visitor attraction uh, for young people to learn about science, with laboratories for new business formulation, conference facilities, and this site was then purchased with money from the Millennium Fund. And the product of that, it has the visitor attraction, uh, which has uh, run as an, uh, for young people particularly. It has the laboratories, it has incubators, it has conference facilities, and it's on what was the former uh, cattle market of, of, of the city. And in the middle of that, you can see the market uh, house of the cattle market, where the uh, a group looking at the ethics, the politics and ethics of life sciences was located. And this model, was built with money from the Millennium Fund and uh, the, the site came from the Urban Development Corporation. A new legal entity was established and it was going great guns when, and visited by the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown. And he said, I really like this idea of bringing business, society, the universities together in one building space. In the middle, there was a square which was used for performance and in the in the winter is now used for ice skating. This space, he said, I really like this idea. Can you explode this idea and apply it to the whole city? 
and create a city of science, bringing together science, business, innovation and the community. And we said yes. And he said, yes, OK, I will designate you as a science city. And he did that in his budget. And at that same, more or less at the same time, the old brewery site in the centre of Newcastle uh, became vacant because the brewery moved and the university, in partnership with the city council and the regional development agency, purchased the brewery site for the development of a new hub of what we were going to call uh, Newcastle City of Science. Um, and so that all went ahead and was a very key site and has now been developed. Crick and Watson, uh, who developed that uh, uh, that helix uh, 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 from genetics, and many people say, well, then we need a we need a third helix, which is dealing with university with research and business. So you've got the idea of the triple helix: universities and business and government working together on science and innovation. And then people say, well, what about citizens? Um, and they came up with this idea of the quadruple helix, bringing citizens into that model. And to cut a very long story short, the site, which was the brewery site of 29 acres in, in the centre of Newcastle, is now called The Helix, based on that model, where many of these activities are all coming together. So this was a, this was something that excited me most, and it's now rolled on and, 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 and lots of developments on that site. Thank you, John. If you were to go back to your time as a student at university, what would you say has changed the most since then? Oh, gosh, that is a long time ago. And I was a student in London, UCL. But I guess the thing that's changed most over my lifetime in university. So I've been an academic since 1968 when I was a student in 1963. So I've been around a long time. And I guess the one thing that has changed most drastically over this long period of time is a widespread recognition that... Uh, and I'm interested, I'm an urbanist, I'm interested in cities uh, and, and, and then the role of universities in cities. I think what has happened is a recognition over this period that universities are not just in cities, but part of their cities, that in and of. You know, we were, I was at UCL, we were in London, but we weren't seen to be part of London. That has changed dramatically now. Many now universities now work in partnership with business, public authorities and local communities to enhance the well-being of all. What many refer to as a global civic university movement. That didn't exist when I was a student and a young academic. In this process, many universities have sought to break down both organizational and physical barriers to working with their communities. And they're recognizing their role as place-based anchor institutions in a highly globalized world. And this word anchoring is quite important because clearly in the past, universities were, were not global institutions. They are by definition a global institution, but they are also in the whole world is globalized with digital supply chains and all the rest. But the role of an anchor institution is to tie down the global in the local. So the response of the universities to the pandemic and the current challenge of climate change has highlighted to me this uh, importance of this civic role. So something that has, has changed dramatically, that universities were ivory towers disconnected from their place. Now few universities can ignore their civic role. And looking at the universities in general, then, from your perspective, what would you still like to change? 
Well, I, I think the biggest obstacle still in all of this agenda is how we recognise and reward universities and their staff for their contributions to civil society. If I could quote from a former director of the, the LSE, London School of Economics, a, a very interesting paper he wrote about 10 years ago, he, and I'll quote from him, he said, we in the academy treat our opportunities to do research not as a public trust, but as a reward for success in past studies. Rewards for research are deeply tied up with the production of academic hierarchy and the relative standing of, university, of institutions. So academics get rated by their publications in peer-reviewed journals. That affects their chances of, of promotion. They all want to get to Oxford and Cambridge and climb up the greasy pole, just as universities want to be top of the league table based around narrowly defined scientific excellence. But he goes on to say, which I'll pick up again, quote, public support for universities is based on the effort to educate citizens in general, to share knowledge, to distribute it as widely as possible in accord with publicly articulated purposes. So in other words, universities still, notwithstanding fees, which are underwritten by the government, are broadly speaking, publicly funding. And it's quite appropriate for the public to say, we invest our money in universities, but what is it doing for us? And the former vice chancellor of Newcastle University, who I worked with, uh, Chris Brink, was very interesting. When he went around the university and saw academics and, and academic departments, he asked one, one key question. I'm not only interested in what you are good at, that's the citations in papers and journals, but what you are good for. So this whole question of of what I would like change is a deeper understanding in universities of how you reward and recognize the contributions that academics and uh, professional service people make to the wider society, both globally and locally. And there still is a battle on, on that front. Furthering on from that point, John, could I ask what rewards you have received to make you feel <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, that's interesting. Got, uh, I mean, I sense I was removed from being a, a, an academic studying these things to becoming uh, recognised that these academic contributions were important for practice and got moved from being a plain old professor to a, first a pro vice chancellor, deputy vice chancellor. <laughs> and there was a financial reward from that, if I'm honest. But most importantly, I think the rewards have been personally, not financial, but global recognition, that a movement which I've over the years played a part in establishing about the civic role of universities is now becoming a global movement. So I get satisfaction from something I've done and contributed to and, and others have contributed in, in becoming a, a global movement. And in a way, I'm 78 now to be offered at the age of 77 a new ch a chair. I was the oldest <laughs> new professor Birmingham ever appointed, I think. So so in a sense, that's that is a recognition as well. Uh, so I, I think that many academics want recognition. They don't necessarily want it in recognition in financial terms. They want it in terms of 
uh, seeing what they are doing benefits the wider society. And there's and particularly younger academics now who are beginning to aspire to contribute to the public good, not just only to climb the greasy pole. Thank you, John. It's, it's really good to hear that the, the financial rewards are overshadowed by making a difference, really. And, and you've made such a difference in your long career. I just would like to thank you for everything that you've done and spoken about and still doing working towards a positive future for everybody. I'd like to move on a bit to the the physical spaces a university has. And what would you say are the impact of physical spaces if a university wants to embrace its civic mission? Well, I think it's critically important that we, we think about what I've been what I'm interested in, how the university opens itself out to the wider society in its place. And that is both an organisational question, how the university is led and managed, but it's also a question that we have to ask the people who are responsible for the management of the, of the spaces, the directors of estates, the professional service people. I'd like to ask them how they're going about opening out the university campus, buildings and facilities to the community in order, and this is a very important part of what I'm arguing, to co-create knowledge and learning with those outside the university. Not the notion somehow that we've got the knowledge and we chuck it over the fence and hope it's in our publications and our articles that someone will pick it up and act upon it, but actually to co-create that knowledge working in other institutional leaders and also with those in the university that are responsible for academic departments. So it's about how we can create these places where the community, business can, and the university researchers can come together to create new knowledge about how to tackle some of the big challenges our society faces. So and place is very important. Another term which I sometimes use is we heard the concept of laboratory. We know about laboratories with test tubes and all the rest of it. But equally, the city, the place can be a living laboratory where we experiment and look at new ways of working with a business and the community to generate jobs, to generate well-being. And so this notion of the university working with partners in the city in making the place a living laboratory, not just a laboratory locked up behind closed doors, but in the outside world. And we've seen that in many respects within, within the pandemic about how the university has been working with partners in dealing with the public health issues associated with the pandemic. And in many cities, and particularly my own city, Newcastle, I know well, the city has been a living laboratory for new ways of working. I spoke with someone about that recently and in how universities sometimes gain participants for research within the walls. And and you're saying now it's the importance of, of spreading that out so that Participants in research are from all walks of life, from uh, from the city itself, but also from the wider community. I wonder if you could mention any key barriers for universities to engage with these local communities. Well, I, I think part of the uh, part of the the challenge has been the one that the barriers from the point of view of the uh, the inside out, as it were, which is the the issue about the incentives for the staff. But equal, another big barrier is, is what I would call outside in. 
how is the how do we what how do we have build capacity in the community to reach into the university and and this is quite challenging we can do it in a whole variety of ways particularly through students students working in small businesses in the community as part of their uh, their learning work-based learning uh, through doing volunteering so the whole idea of building the capacity particularly in in small businesses in the community and voluntary sector to build ability to work with the academy in a combined way and build collaborative capacity that's an essential task and and sometimes we have all this knowledge and it's parachuted in and there is limited absorptive capacity outside. So I think this role of the university in building that, overcoming these barriers to absorption by working with the users and building, as it were, their capacity, demand capacity to reach into the university. So to keep repeating a phrase, it's both reach out and reach in. Are there any particular examples of best cases of universities doing this on an international scene? Well, yes, there are. I mean, many, many of them and, and no, every place is different. I think that's the point. It's quite difficult to say, you know, this is one model. Ones I've worked with in my uh, a book I've edited called uh, Civic University, the Leadership and, and Management Challenges. Uh, and one of the case studies we have is Alto University in Finland. Now, Alto is very interesting because the architects in this audience will recognise Alto was a was a Finnish architect and also quite an entrepreneur. And the uh, Alto University was a new university created in Helsinki. It already was a Helsinki university by bringing together a school of architecture and design and a business school in creating a new uh, university. And they couldn't be called the University of Helsinki, so they because they the name often the university are named after places. So they had to create a new university, and they created it on a new campus in the suburbs of of Helsinki, and they called it Alto uh, after the name of the ar architect. And this university has been very successful in basically bringing people with uh, business skills and design skills and academic schools to incubate new ideas about how you design cities, how you design uh, products. They have a thing called the Alto Factory, which is basically an incubator of new ideas where you've got business people, uh, academics, uh, architects, designers coming together, incubating new ideas. So Alto is a very interesting example. Another one, which I in the U, just the one at the UK, I mean, clearly lots of interesting examples in Newcastle with the, the Helix site, which I refer to, and a new campus they're developing called the Campus for Aging and Vitality, which is in the whole old hospital site, the general hospital site, where we're bringing together a whole bunch of people interested in the issue of aging and bringing together the whole idea of citizens bringing their ideas about the issues of aging, not just as, as it were, lab rats for the, the academics to summon them, but how they can actively be involved in designing new products and services and testing them out on this campus for aging and vitality. A final example, I think, which is, I think is quite important. Most of the examples I've talked about being research intensive universities, but Sheffield Hallam University is very interesting because it isn't a campus university. 
having its own self-contained campus in the city, but it's really embedded in the heart of the centre of Sheffield. And the way they're developing all of their buildings to make sure they are embedded in the functioning of the city centre of Sheffield is really quite outstanding. So there are plenty of examples. And in fact, there is a national network of, of, of universities now coming together to develop what they call innovation districts, which is looking not only at these sort of research and innovation hubs, like the campus raising of vitality, but also how this spreads out into the wider community and making sure you don't create these pinnacles of science excellence surrounded by areas of deprivation and, and left behindness. So how do you then build that build a district which is embedded in the concept of making innovation happen out in the community? So there's a hell of a lot happening here. I mean, books and books of stuff and lots and lots of stuff. You've worked now and studied, I suppose, for a number of decades. Are you firstly optimistic about the future and what sort of predictions would you make about the roles and the purposes of universities over the next few decades? I think we are, we are in a quite a key change moment at the present time and partly accelerated by the pandemic. We have known for a long time that digital technologies will be changing the way we, we work, the way we study, where we study, where we work, on, on impact on cities and more homeworking and mixed mode teaching and learning. That has all been accelerated by the pandemic. And this is having and, and the, also the extent to which people, students will move from country to country. So there is, I think, quite a real challenge facing the, the business model of universities based on international mobility, students coming to campuses, studying away from home. I think the whole university sector is going to face some quite severe challenges in how it adapts to the digital world. And also it's going to be impacting on the cities themselves. There's going to be vacant office space. There's going to be empty student accommodation. So the whole physical form of, of cities and of universities as teaching and learning spaces could change, will change. And how universities adapt in a smart sort of way to be at the leading edge not just running behind the curve, but actually setting the agenda for new ways of working, I think is going to be extremely challenging. And how governments, will still remain funders of universities, are going to respond to all of that uh, nationally and internationally. And I think there will be a big set of quite difficult questions to ask about the business model and public funding of universities and what they're expected to deliver. So I'm, I'm in a way, I'm optimistic because I think the universities in many respects have stepped up to the plate in a really fantastic way in responding to the pandemic, not just through the medical, medical sciences and all those things, but the way they serve their communities. Many of them, like my own university, has a program called Digital Newcastle University on digital civics, bringing the citizens involved. I think we can be uh, new forms of anchor institutions. I think place is still going to matter. We're still going to want places. We want warm and welcoming places, uh, but we're going to have to be operating in those places in a very different way. So ultimately, I'm an enthusiastic pessimist, if you like.
If you were to ask a question to those people that are designing spaces of the future, what sort of question would you like them to think about answering? I think it's critically important that the people who are engaged in designing university campuses, and I've been working with a group at UCL on on this, um, that they think about, get understand the university first, how it functions, how it operates, uh, what its drivers are, what its barriers are, many of the things you've uh, questions you've asked me. Those who are responsible for university de- developments. By and large, many of these people, broadly in in the architecture and and urban design area, the university as an institution is a black box. They don't understand it. And and I think it's critically important before you start building new buildings, building new campuses, adapting uh, existing campuses, that you get a better understanding of the university as an institution. Um, And that involves talking with academics, leaders um, who manage institutions, pro-vice-chancellors, vice-chancellors, plugging yourself into the discourse about what are universities for. Unless you can begin to understand what universities are for, it's very problematic to design them and and design them in a a way that really be, be fit for purpose. That's a pretty fundamental architectural principle, understanding what the uh, what is the function, just to wear a completely different hat. I'm, I'm involved with the uh, redevelopment of, of Newcastle Cathedral uh, as a civic institution. And it was a historic institution where we were working with architects and they spent most of their time working with us who are leading this big heritage lottery project what is the cathedral for, what is its functions, what its purposes, and that's being built into their uh, design and redevelopment strategies. So that's my key message. Understand what universities are for before you start uh, drawing drawings. Thank you, John. And just to conclude then, would you be able to complete the sentence, university spaces should be? Open and welcoming to the society, 